The 3CR Gardening Show is coming to you today from the Woi Wurrung Nation. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of this land. We recognise the practices of care and cultivation of the land and waters by the First Peoples and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Wherever you are and wherever you garden, we encourage you to know whose land you're on. This is the 3CR Garden Show and I'm Virginia Haywood. With me are Ben from Treasured Perennials and Meryl from Street Seedscape. Good morning, gang. Good morning. Good morning. It's the assault of the Gippslanders this morning. <laughs> Both Ben and Meryl are very proud Gippslanders, but from West Gippsland, the best bit. <laughs> Absolutely. It is extraordinarily beautiful down your way. It is, but shh, don't tell anyone. Yeah, she's and a bit the, dry, though. It's still a bit dry. Oh, try the Yarra Valley. Yeah. I have to say the drive from my place in the Yarra Valley to you is one of those beautiful drives. It is. Yeah. Through all the tree fern forests. Forests and it's, the big mountain ash, it's fabulous. It's absolutely fabulous. And the drive from me to Stephen in yes. Macedon is also absolutely... I go down Breaker Day Road and it is absolutely beautiful. Yes. I We're just, lucky. Yep, I avoid going through the city. It's probably quicker. Oh, yes, I, but not, not as much not fun. To, yeah, and it, not to you, definitely. My, It's the quickest way is to go through those forests. Yes. But the beauty about it, I mean, it, you, you don't need to travel far. To um to experience these these beautiful drives. I mean, no, they're so... all wrapped around Melbourne. Yeah, yes, yeah. it is extraordinary that our city. I mean, I'm only forty five minutes from here, which is you know Fitzroy, right at the edge of the city, and I'm yeah. only forty five minutes away. Yeah, and it's so beautiful. When I was well, sitting yesterday at mine, it was stunning, and I got here and it was eight degrees hotter. Yes, which was extraordinary. Yes. But let's hope for some rain now. We we need that autumn break to come in and make all our veggies grow. I'm sure it's getting later. Um, the last few years, even yes. though we've had these lovely wet years, I think the autumn rains have come later. And my garden is very dry. Yes, likewise. Very dry. But I do have some water in my tanks. Ah, that's good. Yes. <laughs> Makes a big difference. It sure does. Anyway, good morning to everybody. I hope you're having a beautiful morning this morning. It's the most delightful temperature out there at the moment (laughs) and going to be a mild day, so great day for gardening. And I'm going to be pleased when daylight saving ends. I find it being dark still at 7 o'clock a bit... It's a bit annoying, isn't it? It's a bit daunting (laughs) (laughs) because, you know, I'm a morning person. I wake up when the sun gets up and then I... um, I just go straight outside. Yes. So if the sun doesn't get up till seven, I don't get out till half past seven, which yes. for me is, it seems really late. <laughs> yeah. But nevertheless, nevertheless, I've, I love to get in my garden. It's very good for my soul. Any time of the day or evening. And for people who are wondering about having something to do today, have a look. The Chili Festival has its, its, its last day today in the Yarra Valley at Wandon. So you just head to Lilydale and then go up the Warburton Highway. 
Yes. Good thing at Dying Clive, they put on a good show, don't they? Yeah. So because they do the Yarra Valley Plant Plant Fair, Fair as well. That's that's a fantastic show. Yes, so I love it. Of, yeah, lots of people. Well, both Ben and and ourselves, Seedscape and and Ben's perennials are, are there, and it's just the best day because it's a lovely flat site, so it's easy to walk around. You 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 know you don't get tired. Lots of seats, lots of shade. And great people to talk to. That's what I like the best. Everyone's a happy gardener, it seems, at the Yarra Valley Plant Fair. What do you reckon, Ben? No, they are. It's. Um, I think all the all the shows. We we um, we have a ball, like yeah. talking to people and sort of educa- educating people. That's right. Yeah, answering so, questions and yeah, sharing your triumphs and tragedies. I think that's all part of gardening it fun, is. isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And yeah. that Yarra Valley Plant Fair that they are talking about is the twenty second and twenty third of April, and it's also in the Yarra Valley, obviously in Wandon. So you go to Lilydale and then hit the Warburton Highway. Um, so the Chili Fest today and the Yarra Valley Plant Fest twenty third and twenty. 22nd and 23rd of April. Yes. Because I think it's, I mean, that's the thing that makes these fairs different is you've got access to people who are doing really unusual. Last week, Fernie Creek, that was wonderful. It was a really happy weekend, wasn't it? In perfect weather and a glorious setting. A beautiful location, yeah. Oh, it is, it is. is. And again, it's not too big, you know. It's very easy to walk around. You can dally and spend time talking, seats to sit down. And, of course, not to forget the ladies' wonderful homemade scones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We got them at the end of the end of Sunday. Oh, yes. <laughs> no, I must That's the reward. Yeah. I head for the sausage sizzle. <laughs> Carnival. Yeah. It's the only time, too. I never buy sausages. I, I don't have sausages in the house. But when I go to Fernie Creek, and I must admit, I don't do it now, but I used to go to Bunnings because I could get a sausage sizzle. <laughs> Because <laughs> I eat very little meat, but you know, if there's sausage, and often they're not good. When you see a sausage sizzle with good sausages, it's positively oh, exciting. <laughs> but well, the, but the Fernie Creek, they they do other shows, uh, other um, uh, events throughout the year too. So. Yes, yeah, they're, they're so which are all pretty good. I always yeah. credit the Fernie Creek Horticultural Society for getting me started in gardening because I was just a, a potterer, you know. I, I enjoyed gardening, I loved it, but then I went to the Fernie Creek Horticultural Society, um, one of their, their flower shows, and I was smitten. I couldn't believe it. I, they're there are all these things that I've never seen or heard of before. All these people who know all about it. My goodness, it was so exciting. And it's all their fault, really. It's been a lifetime in the garden. <laughs> Excellent. And Millie has just walked in. Good morning, Millie. Millie, who underestimated how many trams actually cross the city on an early on a Sunday morning, so has had a very brisk walk from, um, from the other side of the world. But very pleased to be here. It's such a gorgeous morning, actually, and... I mean, it's interesting to see those tents going up and see oh. that gerbera with a go. I wonder if they'll ever change the Mifkus logo is what I was thinking <laughs> as I walked along. I thought, we haven't liked gerberas for a while. Uh, but, yeah, interesting to see that all sort of starting to, to get its feet in the ground. Oh, it's but very exciting, isn't it? it? It's just wonderful. We're and, lucky. And what Millie's talking about is she's just walked past the beginnings of Mifkus which is, what's the dates on Mythcurse? That's the second, the, no, it finishes on the 2nd of April, so then it starts the Wednesday before. Let me think, that's the 29th of March to the 2nd of 
April. And MIFCUS is a much bigger event than Fernie Creek. Yes. Oh, yes. It's the biggest horticultural event in the Southern Hemisphere. So and people really do come from all over. In interstate, we mm. have lots of visitors. Yeah. Although I was surprised how many people from interstate turned up at Fernie Creek. Oh, absolutely. There's one lady, I'm sure Ben knows her as well, who comes every year, drives herself from Lura in the Blue Mountains because she says she can't get plants anything like you know, we show it at some of those collectors' mm. plant fairs that we attend. So she brings herself all the way from Lura every year. It is the place to go if you want unusual things in your garden. Yes. Or, I mean, as are the, the small nurseries like Craig's, Gentiana in, yes. in the Yarra Valley Even or like Stephen. Y- y- Yemina, yeah, as Yemina, well. Yeah, yeah Yemina so, in Because they're, they're all Mongol. unique, yeah, mm. really unique plants. It's so true. Yeah. I've just, I've actually, the reason I'm on the other side of the city is I've been participating in the Australian Landscape Conference for the last couple of days. So, oh, great. Um, which is still running again today, which is, is such uh, I, I couldn't recommend it enough, really, if you're interested in, th- in thinking about plants and gardens and landscapes. But also thinking outside of that, a lot of what is discussed over the few days is everything from climate. We, yesterday we had um, presentations on projects in China that are all about monsoonal mitigation and, you know, your mind is blown by how quickly a landscape can be installed in, in China. <laughs> you know, he said, no, it took a year to build it. You hear the whole room go, what? what? <laughs> uh, but it was, it was a, a topic of conversation often in the breaks is talking about access to plants and that issue that starts to happen when, you know, landscape architects particularly, but, you know, big projects are wanting to trial more diverse plantings, they're wanting to use more plants in the landscape. There's certainly a move towards that because they understand all of those roles that a garden can play, but then where do you get them? And and the less and less little nurseries that are growing more interesting things, which is, you know, maybe they're not going to grow 20,000 things for a project, but they are going to be able to supply stock plants for someone to then take them out and grow them, to have them available, not only to home gardeners, but also to those kind of big projects. I think it's we've really painted ourselves into a bit of a corner, unfortunately, and the drought probably helped to do that, the millennium drought, when we lost so yes. many nurseries yes. over, over that decade, and with them so many plants that aren't necessarily easy to access. They're in the country, but they're hard to find. And I know there was lots of talk amongst designers around that um, and also amongst people that I was chatting to who are, you know, former big nursery people who are like, you know, I, I want to encourage people to use plants and I work with landscape architects now, but I can't necessarily find them for them. And that is just this this huge gap. So, And we've got Lamley on the market. I know. Which is well, well, I've heard a rumour it's sold, but I haven't heard an official rumour who to or how, how whether it's oh, happened. Oh, it, it has sold, I hope so. Yeah. Yes. I, but, I, but I think, I mean, Lamley is just one nursery, you know. Like I think that in the old days there used to be little growers everywhere. Every little town had someone that grew something they were passionate about. And I know plant collectors who, I mean, uh, wonderful David Fripp, who some people might know because he did a series on Gardening Australia and, and others will know because they've been plant collectors. And he's previously been out of Sydney and now he's actually gone north right up to the tropics. But he said to me once, he said, I always call into a tiny nursery in a little town. Yes, because you fuzzing around. Yes. He said, because you'll never know what, what, you know, I've come out with basket ferns I couldn't get anywhere else. And, you know, that just these collections of plants and I 
I feel like I, I hope that that's one of the things that might come out of this resurgence in young people being interested in growing is some, some little nurseries or some little growers that'll yes. build their skills, build their collections. I mean, some people are doing plant breeding in their lounge rooms. Yes. You know, it's crazy. There's <laughs> tissue culture labs in people's lounge rooms now. But, I mean, that is the modern era and maybe it will be a benefit for all of us to have more variety available for our gardens. Well, yeah. at Ferny Creek, one of the things that killed me was that there was a, a stall just inside the door and she had ferns that are not available anywhere in Australia. Yeah. Mm. You know, and for her daughter's partners, you know, one of those sort of connections. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he grows these things, but he exports them all. He does oh, yeah. it out of passion. Yes. And, you know, you cannot get these, which is why you go to these small plant fairs, because yes. they do have that sort of effect. And, and I had an example of what Millie's talking about just this week, in that I had a, a landscaper who was doing big jobs interstate and he particularly wanted to plant a plant. He worked it into his design but could not source it anywhere, actual plants, and he needed a fair quantity too. But fortunately we were able to supply him with seeds sufficient to do these two big jobs uh, and he was quite prepared to start from scratch, grow it from seed so that he could eventually get it into his design. Speaking with some of the, the landscapers and landscape designers, many of them were alluding to that they do have their own little nurseries starting to set up. So yeah. they know that there's certain plants. One of the fantastic um, landscaper I met from Port Douglas, who, you know, so many fascinating things going up on up there. But he, he said that, he said, you know, there's all of these incredible plants out of Darwin, grevilleas, for example. He said, if I ever see... You know, someone's got something. I'll buy all of them. <laughs> you know, and then I've got them down the back Greedy of the hog. Because, because I know that I will, I'll put them into a design and I know I can't put them into a design and, and then find them. So no. I have to jump on certain things when they're available. But I think it is, I mean, it's exciting that people want different plants and want more plants. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, that... For me, that idea of a good plant or a reliable plant, you know, they're all things that we need to discuss sometimes because if, you, if you're describing something as a landscape designer, you have to put something that you think is going to work in. Yes. But us gardeners, we can make mistakes all the time. <laughs> you know, we can try something <laughs> it's new. It's the triumphs and the tragedies, isn't Exactly. It? <laughs> and so to think you always have to get it right or it always has to be a good plant, no. I just think is have such fun. a misnomer in gardening. But and, all, but also see this is the whole point of plant trust which Stephen is the, is the president of yes. and I'm a member of and the idea of plant trust is to try and preserve those plants that are in our gardens that have become unpopular and could just disappear species yes. species varieties particularly so, species yeah, so that's, that's mm. something that I'm very big with is just species varieties and that's why I love doing it all like getting it all by seed Yes. So, because that way you're getting, you're not getting cultivars. You are getting the the, the actual species varieties, and, and we're so. preserving that gene pool. Yeah. Um, there wasn't much good that came out of COVID, I must say, but one good thing was that uh, during the lockdowns, many young people started gardening. I've found who hadn't necessarily had time or place mm. to garden before, mm. and they began gardening. I'm really noticing it at the plant shows that there's more and more young people mm. who are becoming passionate about it and really interested and prepared to become knowledgeable. And I think that's a marvellous thing because what Millie was talking about before, the millennium drought, it sort of saw out 
some of the old guard. And it's been a bit of a worry, you know, where's the new guard to, to take over from us? But they're here, well, they've well, arrived. Well, see, this is why it's so important if Lamley has sold. I mean, it is just one nursery, but there are fewer and fewer of those nurseries that Specialists. are, that are mm. doing... No, you've got two in the room right here. I, I would argue that, like, I hope that nursery continues, but it mm. might continue in a different way. So someone might take it on and change it, and that is... That's also inspiring. That's part of it. Yesterday we saw, so, you know, really lucky Fergus Garrett, who is the long-term. Yes. Um, uh, what is he? I don't even know what he calls himself, but he, he runs a great dixter, which was Christo Lloyd or Christopher Lloyd's famous garden in the UK. And, and he, he gave a presentation about the biodiversity results they've achieved. And his wife is an ecologist and he, he gave a beautiful, humble presentation where he just reminded us many times and it became increasingly funny about his wife saying, why don't you get a pro- proper audit done? And he, of course, I ignored her. And then I was telling her about all these butterflies I'd seen, you know, and it, it kind of went on. But, they, you know, they, they had that... You know, what he's done in changing it in the way he manages it as much as anything, you know, it was always a flamboyant and wonderful and experimental garden. But under his stewardship, you know, taking it, having that, I mean, obviously he knew he was allowed to do it. He knew that that's what Christo would want, was for him to run with his own interpretation of that place. And and when Fergus moves on, I mean, I have no doubt there's there's people, you know, who will take that further. You know, they're trying to set it up as a trust. And the way he's changed the management of that garden, not only the aesthetic management but the approach and the organic management of that garden has meant it's one of the most biodiverse sites in the UK, Mm. you know, demonstrated now by science. And it is, I think it's a real testament. And he was, as I left last night, I said, I just want to thank you for reminding even, you know, everyone respects Fergus, everyone admires him, his plant knowledge is wonderful. But he was asked the question, how much do people know? You know, you've got great skill and knowledge. You know, what do people really need to know to build a garden? And he said nothing. Just have fun. <laughs> you know, he That's... said the gardens I like the most are the ones that people have just scratched out without the rules. And I think that, yes, you know, somewhere like Lamley, it's been something. It's had an identity. It's had an iconic time and it's been very influential on people. But it may it may just go to dust. It may go in a totally different direction and we should all go with that because that's the only option it's got really it's like a garden isn't it you can't keep it no there's the not mausoleums <laughs> exactly they they change and they continue and and you'd hope that that whoever is taking that that on does want to keep it open to the public isn't going to just shut the gates and in, enjoy that glorious garden for themselves which might happen but they will you know they'll embrace it with similar experimentation mm. boundary pushing testing you know really and dedication to the horticulture, which is is the extraordinary thing about that place, the, the meticulous nature that that vegetable garden is tended. Like that is respectful of that type of growing. Yes. And I, you know, I often say to people, you get good at growing veggies, you can grow anything because mm. yes. it's bloody hard. Because everyone yes. wants them. It's not just you that wants to eat them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but also, it, it takes sharing to a whole new level. <laughs> timing, technique, it's all involved there. And it is one of the really difficult things to do because yes. many of them are annuals and you have to actually follow it through all, all the way the time. through you, the whole you procedure. Can't, you can't decide, oh, this week I won't bother. Yeah. Which with your perennials, you know, you go away for a week, they'll still be They're there hardy, when you come though. back. Yep. 
but yeah. you go away on a hot week and leave your tomatoes. Bye bye tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly true, and I think and I also think... the rotation that is necessary. I mean, you don't the... have to do it, but if you do do it, you get better veggies. The timing, you know. Mm. I, I recently spent time with some amazing seed farmers down on the Mornington Peninsula, Transition Seeds, and we filmed a story with them over a couple of days, Robin and Peter, and they are just really trying to do something that I haven't seen. I know there's a few seed people, but, you know, most of, you would know most of the seeds that are sold in this country, even by some of our most renowned seed sellers, are bought from overseas and repackaged and sold to us. And so when you're looking at something that has to perform in a six-month window, there's not a lot of time for that thing to learn how bright the sun is in Australia or hot, how hot the sun is in Australia or how, how or, our days operate, right? Or how the season is different. This Absolutely. is one, one of the absolute problems with many of the tulips. They come in from overseas, they yes. perform brilliantly yes. once yeah. and, and then bye-bye tulips. Even a tulip up. will learn over mm. time. It'll get, it'll get the hang of it if you, you can keep them going if they're suited. And, and, you know, the work they're doing on seeds is exactly that. It's like we reala- they were market gardeners and they're like, we realised we could not get reliable, quality, organic seed that was adapted to Australia. So because when, when I was getting seed in, um, I found when I was propagating it and I'd get like 20% strike rate and now when I've got the plant established, I'm actually getting around about 80 90% strike rate. Yeah, but I'm also using inhibitors as well to, you know, um, help break the dormancy as well. Yep, yes. Um, you know, it's th- things like, you know, smoke water. Yes. Um, and now I'm trialling um, like manganese and trace elements because, you know, they're essential minerals in those that um, uh, start the process of the uh, dormancy. Yeah, germination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So it's part of the imbibition. So Sometimes when yeah. I imagine germination, what's happening, you know, when you soak a seed in water, you know, you can sort of, it's like, it's like thinking about the black hole, you know, or the birth of a star, the way yeah, yeah. things are happening in there. Yeah. Like just amazing enzymatic chemical, you know, biological reaction. It's but, just what is happening in a seed when you drop it in a glass main of water. The mineral for, for, to, to, to start the germination is manganese, manganese and iron. So if you can actually provide those minerals to the, to the seed, um, it, it makes it a lot stronger when it gets a bit older too, so a bit more resilient to, to you know, certain pathogens that are in the soil yes. and speed up the process of the, the germination. So, and that's the good thing about smoke water because the carrikins actually break down the um, the, the seed coating, it and that stimulates that that. Sh- uh, that, that and Ben, and that Ben, growth. are you talking about seeds that we know need smoke, or are you talking about no. all seeds? All seeds. All seeds. So yeah. I found, see, especially with uh, with vegetable seeds. So normally, when you, for instance, like a, a brassica, um, you can take you know a few days for them to to germinate once you start putting the water on them. I found when I use the smoke water. Within twelve to twenty-four hours, I actually had that that root growth. They demonstrated that yeah. when they when they did all of that research and gave yeah. them the name Carrican, they demonstrated that that it's not just Australian plants or plants that are smoke adapted, you know, yeah. in a in a in a fire adapted landscape. That there's yeah. a huge range of things, even better tomatoes. Yeah, like but, just a bit of smoke water. But the smoke water actually get uh, keeps your um, snails away, snails and slugs away. Oh, so if you've got like good smoke taste. water. If you've got good smoke water, it'll keep them away. It if does got, stink. You, yeah, <laughs> it'll yeah, keep yeah. a lot of people away yeah. too. <laughs> so that's the beauty about that one. <laughs> this is the 3CR Garden Show and I'm Virginia Hayward. With me are Meryl from Seedscape, Millie from the ABC Gardening Show and Ben from Treasured Perennials. Now I have a question which has come through from last week on our um, 
I listen to the show via podcast, so I'm sending my question this way. I've recently set up my first beehive and I'm needing to get some shade happening, ideally by next summer. I'm looking for fast-growing recommendations for a few deciduous trees as the the hive needs winter sun. If there are flowers for the bees as well, that's excellent. I'm in central Victoria. The site is exposed on a rocky clay hill facing north and west. It's a tough question. <laughs> it was that last bit that got us, wasn't yeah, it? that spun through us. <laughs> well, a crab apple leaps to mind for me because yes. some of the crabs I find and the, abs- the absolute beauty in my garden for the, for the drought was the Judas tree. Mm. Yes, yeah, Judas yeah, trees yeah, are great. It's yes. just it just flew through the drought in a way yeah. that uh, and some and two crab apples I have got through the drought. Actually, now you mention it, our circus struggled in these wet years. Mm. So yes, that's mm. a. It's not too big. It's got a nice spreading sort of canopy, hasn't mm. it? Yes. Been? Yeah, and I love the flowers too. Oh, yeah. the flowers yeah. are sensational yeah. because they burst straight out of the the bark. Mm. There's mm. no stem for the flowers, and uh, in bud, the, the whole thing mm. is just. A joy because it's covered. Well, depending on the colour that you get, you can get red ones, pink ones, and mm, and white, white ones. ones. Mm. But it's like pearls all over the the tree, and then the flowers burst out, um, and, and then and then the leaves come. and then the leaves come afterwards. Mm, yes, which, which does make it really. And quite it has a lovely autumn mm. colour. So yes, I think that's so, a jolly good. So, so I think definitely the circus, um, Alagastromias. No, are they deciduous? No, they are. Yes. They're, yes. They're, um, probably really, they'd be more ideal because they can handle the dry conditions a lot mm. better than probably the Cersus, actually. No, Cersus siliquestrum. It's the Judas tree. Yeah. The, the, the Canadian ones are not yeah. as good. But good, the Cersus, no. It's the Middle Eastern yeah. Yeah. It comes from plant. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think um, probably the Lagostromia would also do quite well. I mean, the wind is, the wind's a tricky one because when someone says it's a windy site, you, you do need to kind of support a young tree so if it's in a really windy site so it's not just going to be wrenching its own little roots rock, out rock, of the ground rock, yeah. mm. but not so much that it's not going to know how to so it's a little bit of a balancing act to to kind of help it establish but I mean I think the Circus is a fantastic plant and I, I think there's actually a few cultivars around on the market now that you know are a little bit more upright um, or and also you know some of them do seem to, seem to set a lot of seed um, which I always sort of thought they look quite, um, quite, uh, quite out of proportion when they're hanging with these huge seed Seeds. pods. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it might be worth just doing a little investigating. If you're going to plant a grove of them, it's probably more likely that that might happen. So there might be a cultivar that's less likely to do that. Um, but but yeah, never, I think I've they're a wonderful the, tree. I've never found the seeds. Um, We've We'd, never had no, no, no. no. It's it's more like a, it's that they would it's a look. often you'd might might want to go and take them off, but um, but yeah, I think that's a really great suggestion. And I mean, you always got to say walk the block or drive the block if you're in a re- rural area. See what is persisting, and then I mean, I would add to that check that it is still uh, something that's suitable to plant because there's many many deciduous trees that. Um, that are old trees that are on farms that are seed that seed very readily now. So you know things like some of the ashes and whatnot, which Man. are really robust. But ash would be a terrible idea. You would you yeah. would avoid them. But um, yeah, I mean, there's it's a great time to be thinking about trees, isn't it? And getting prepared for them. I think sometimes people, you know, that they're, they're thinking about that winter season, but it's actually a great time to just pile a 
pile of autumn leaves on the ground where you're going to plant them or yep. dump a bit of chukpu. Um, just sort of start to prepare for the trees and then in winter, you know, you'll you'll have a lot of, an, you know, an easier time getting them in the ground. Yeah, yeah. deciduous trees are just, they're, they're really suitable for, for Australian climate because gives you that shade in summer and then yes. once they've lost their leaves, that, that sunshine through and, winter. And you get all those lovely leaves for the compost mm. as yeah, well. So yeah. there's, there's no, no bad bits. No, not at all. So Anna from Central Victoria, we've got a couple of suggestions there, but we I, the, so the Circus, the Judas tree, not the Canadian one, Circus siliquestrum, and maybe a Lagostromia, which is the... Crepe myrtle. Crepe myrtle, thank and you. And they come in all different colours exactly. as well. Yeah, and you yeah, can get dwarf wonderful. varieties these days. And yeah. I've also upright I've also found yeah. the crab apples. Some yeah. of the yeah, crab apples are crab extremely apples. good. And yeah. Really good. And the thing that you're doing there too, like, I mean, I'm not much of a beekeeper, but it was, um, you know, like you've got a really early flowering tree, you've got a late summer flowering tree. So by having different trees, then you're able to potentially provide more more, more food and more, year more. round but mm. that's you know not just for your bees but for all the all the others other all insects the little and, native yeah. bees that are buzzing around yeah no, that's probably some that's good about with some of our weeds because some of those our weeds will flower like early so you know because bees will start getting active you know late winter yes and if we've got like your dandelions flowering um, at that time, so at least they've got something to feed off in your lawn and, yeah. and yeah. those sort of things as well. It's actually yeah. like where I am in, in Central Vic, you know, it's so cold and wet and had this European aspiration that really all we've got are deciduous trees in the town and as I watched a, you know, 50 to 70-year-old managum get cut down uh, the other day on a spare block... Mm. In a position that I can tell you still could have put two townhouses on that block where it was positioned and the council was confused about what the, you know, like all the loopholes that let trees come down. You know, I always would encourage people to to not always think you can only use a deciduous tree to have different types of light. You know, the sun moves Mm. through the Mm. year. So if you understand, you know, the way the sun moves but also how you might prune a tree, even for fire safety, lifting that canopy, you know, it can lift the canopy enough to to let the sun actually get to where you want it to. So, like, I'm I'm a big advocate for trying to plant some more evergreen trees, actually, because I watch the birds whip around, you know, late winter looking for somewhere to make mm. a nest, mm. and they're in the sides of walls and all sorts of things because none of the trees have any bloody leaves. <laughs> so, you know, there's so many things to consider, but I, I guess the, the big thing is just plant more trees, isn't it? Yes. More that's trees. Right. More You're trees. never going to regret, regret planting a tree and no. the best time to do it was 20 years ago. So, and then I think so just start now. Yeah. Choosing the appropriate tree. So, so if yeah. you've got something more close to the house, then and again, you wouldn't it's... be planting a big eucalyptus or a, mm. an oak tree close to the house. You wouldn't have sort of... Yes. Yeah, uh, and sure again, also, I think, where does the hot north wind come yeah. from you know like yes. I, my first question when i'm planting is can you take the hot northwest winds my next question is do you want um, sun or shade i mean but my first question is the winds. can you take mm. the wind yeah. and clearly anna was talking about that now we've had a um, um one of our local listeners regular listeners peter said millie mentioned david fripp he still operates at pete's ridge inland from gosford his ex blake jolly is now in north queensland oh the gossip like clarified. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> right. I've, have, I've, somewhere, yeah, I yeah, haven't bit, called David for a month since I heard that, but that's in, okay, that's interesting. So the next one is a text message from Rosie in Mitcham. I have lots of marigold seedlings that have germinated in my pots. 
How do I get them through the winter to flower in spring? I've also started collecting seeds to sow in early spring. When does one get grit? Where does one get grit from for spreading over seed trays? Ah, well, uh, first of all, is it English marigolds, calendulas, or is it French marigolds that our caller is talking about? Um, because if it's the English marigolds, the calendulas, they're going to get through the winter quite happily all by themselves, the, the little baby seedlings. But if it's French marigolds, then they are definitely frost tender and will need to be sheltered over the winter. Now, getting the grit, well, personally, I just go to my local garden centre in Nearham South, who mm. has a, a nice line of um, crushed blue metal, yep. which with a good rinse out, good wash through with some clean water, does perfectly well. Or lots of garden centres also have um, uh, crushed granite, which is used for top dressing on paths and things. And yeah. that's I would agree. Suitable. Whatever's local. Yeah. You know, so grit yeah. is just probably describing quite a small gravel. Um, and, and, and sharp. Lamley uses that. Uh, it's it's just that I think it's the five millimetre or smaller or the seven millimetre or smaller um, bluestone gravel, yeah. same mm. sort of thing. That's right. Yep. Um, and, yeah, Screenies. whatever you can get your hands on. And it's cheap as chips if you buy it like that. If you buy it in a bag from a shop that that big that big store (laughs) it'll cost you a lot more than it will to back the car up yeah and shovel a few you know shovel a bag's worth just take a a a supermarket bag with you and most most places will stock seven mil screenings yeah yeah so which is their blue metal yeah and and just give it a good run through with water to you know get the dust and any other contaminants off and and then it's ready to use This and is it's a good the, thing. This is the 3CR Garden Show. I'm Virginia Hayward and with me are Ben from Treasured Perennials, Millie from the ABC Garden Show and Meryl from Seedscape. It's after 8 o'clock and I haven't given out our numbers, which is terrible. <laughs> so if you'd like to ring us, it's 94190155. If you'd like to text us, it's 0488809855. And if you want to email us, which is what Anna did because she is listening to us on podcast, you email gardening at 3cr.org.au. And I've mentioned a couple of the shows coming up. Today's the last day of the Chili Festival. We've got Mythos coming up at the turn of the month. And then the third weekend of April, April we've got the Yarra Valley Garden Show. At Mifkus, there's an event, a discussion panel on the Saturday night, that's Saturday the 1st of April, from 6.30 to 9pm, starting with biscuits and, che- biscuits and cheese and a glass of wine. Very civilised. And this is the Diggers Foundation podcast, which our Chloe has been doing the interviewing. Uh, and it's going to be a discussion panel on eucalyptus, friend and foe. So if you are interested in podcasts, you should have a look at The Diggers podcast. She's done three already, and they're very, very interesting, one of them with Jeremy, who's one of our regulars. And there's also a couple of YouTubes that you might be interested in. One is Johnny, with a Y, J-O-H-N-N-Y-A, Gardening, in which Craig often is on from Gentiana, another one of ours, and the horticulturalists, which of course is Stephen. Yes. So again, YouTube the horticulturalists, and he his latest one, which he hasn't announced yet, but has just come out, is in my garden. So anybody oh. who wants to have a look at my garden, there's about half an hour of it on YouTube. 
Quite fun. <laughs> it is quite good fun. So so that, I think, those YouTubes, I mean, the and I'd love you to have a listen to Chloe's Eucalyptus Friend and Foe, the Diggers one. So Diggers, Johnny A Gardening and the Horty Culturalists. That's H-O-R-T-I stroke culturalists. And then the other thing I'd like to mention for today is that next week for Open Gardens Victoria, there's two, uh, one in Clunes and one on the Dalesford Clunes Road. So there's the Presbytery, 3 Hannah Street, Clunes, and there's Vale Hill House on the Dalesford Clunes Road. So that's next weekend, the 25th and 26th. And we have got uh, one set of free tickets. So if you ring in, you can grab that free ticket and I think going up there for a couple of gardens would be wonderful. Beautiful. Is the presbytery the <clears throat> medicinal plant garden? I would have to look that uh, up. There's a, uh, a really interesting garden out that way, a medical doctor who's basically planting. Um, so he works in, <clears throat> pardon me, he works in chronic health and he un, he's like, I know gardening is the answer. <laughs> <laughs> to a lot of the problems. <laughs> Fantastic. I, I met him at the Clunes Book Booktown um, event and uh, I suspect that that is the garden. No, so, here I've got oh, it. the presbytery set over several levels down a gentle sloping bock. This garden has been created with sustainability foremost as the area has minimal rainfall. The owners have... Ah, it looks like you're right. The owners have... An interest in medicinal plants and have incorporated over 80 different herbs in the garden. A guided tour of these will be conducted by the owner during the opening. The garden's on several levels and overlooks the township of Clunes. So, yeah. yes, you are absolutely Definitely worth right. really and, and really fascinating um, garden. We'll get there eventually. I've got to get out and see them. But, um, yeah, I think that would be, you know, a really different approach and a really interesting approach. You know, it's something that we sometimes struggle with um, when people want to talk about medicinal use of plants it's it's very difficult as a public broadcaster to be responsible. let people let people say things because there's all these regulations about mm. how you can and can't and you know food and drug administrators all these things but uh to have a, a medical person who you know that really has been their own interest to explore um i think that would be really fantastic and very beautiful garden to visit and it's a great part of the world exactly so head out there if we get a bit of rain there might be a few mushrooms around you know it's it's really uh coming uh, on to a and the other one time. there's a good french patisserie i believe the other oh, one is one at Creswick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other garden is Vale Hill House on the Dalesford Clunes Road, destroyed by fire in '78. It has been lovingly resurrected by the previous and current owners. A, a magnificent property sprawling over ten acres, with landscaping over numerous levels and five acres of edible gardens. Ooh, wow! Wow! wow. <laughs> Yum, yum. <laughs> That's a lot of work. <laughs> so they both sound like they'd be excellent. Really fascinating. Yes, absolutely excellent. And, Ben, we have a text message. Your tomato tonic worked so well, aloe, molasses and seaweed. What else can I use this tonic for, please? Well, it's actually the salicylic acid is, um, is the main ingredient you want to use on, your, on for the tomatoes because anything in that sol solanaceae family... Uh, responds to the um, salicylic acid. Um, what it does is it actually helps the uh, the, the flow of the minerals uh, throughout the plant, um, and suppresses a lot of pathogens in that in the like in, in around the plant as well as like your powdery mildews and and that for the plant. And then also it, it stimulates uh, hormones, 
So you you you'll get better flowering, um, you know, with the the uptake of more minerals and that, um, and and good sap flow throughout the plant. So so yeah. for your winter plants, you'd use it on most of them. Uh, winter vegetables. Well, with the research with what I've been doing with the salicylic acid is is. Plants actually have like a, a pathway for salicylic acid. Um, it, it's more to sort of stimulate hormone in the actual plant. Um, and then stimulating hormone will actually help, you know, the microbes and the, and, and the flow or minerals around the, the plant and help to suppress a lot of the, the fungal problems that, that happen around the plant. It's one of the so. old, what a very old technique to, to water your plants with willow water. So pieces of yes. willow soaked in a bucket of water, which, which is, is the same. Salix. That's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you find with uh, aloe vera, aloe vera's got a very, it's got a much higher content than the, the salix. Right. Yeah. The and, salic, well, the willow plant. Yeah. It's got, and, and it's also used in old formulas for uh, rubs to help with rheumatics on people. So yeah, it's the yeah. same same process. But yeah, if you're doing cuttings, um, you can dip it in the, the gel of the leaf as well because it's a, you know, it's a... Of the aloe. Yeah, yes. yeah. So that'll sort of kill off any, any bacteria that's around the, the wound mm-hmm. as well and it helps the, sort of the, the plant to, you know, to, to callus so yes, you yes. start producing the, the, the root system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, look, I... I you apply it to all plants and spray. You just spray underneath the leaf with the, you know, of a morning, so the plant actually takes up the, the the the, the minerals or the salicylic acid. Yeah. Ben, would you like to give the recipe for that? Well, it's actually if you had a, a twenty liter bucket, so you put around about sort of six six leaves of your aloe vera leaf in it. Um, and then you want to fill that up with water. You mash it all up so it's all sort of broken down. Yeah, get that gel out and yeah. happening, yep. Uh, and then actually provide like a bit of uh, like your sea salt, which is like your seaweed solution. Yes. Um, and also molasses. Molasses is like that carbon-based or sugar, so it actually helps to sort of feed yes. any microbes that are actually in the, uh, the mixture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you peel a, uh, an aloe leaf, it'll actually liquefy. Yes. So, yeah. you know, often people for using it, you just – Take the skin off and pop it in a jar, and and it'll it'll liquefy for you to use. So mm. if you yeah, if you have time to do that, yeah, it'll yeah. all happen happen even quickly, more quickly. Yeah, but I, I think it's good to have the leaf because it's there's there's layers as well um, with the, like having the, the leaf because if you if you eat a eat a leaf, the the outer skin uh, and then just beneath the skin can be quite bitter. But when you actually get into the, where the gel is, it, it's not bitter at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, ah, so, so mashing up the leaves yeah. is a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Get so get get all layers, yeah, yes, and sort of mash it all up. So because you're going to get the the different. So layers twenty leaf to bucket. Chuck yeah. in the aloe vera leaves. Yeah, mash it all up. Mash, mash, mash. Yeah, yeah. And then, so what? then you want to add, uh, then you want to add like your seaweed solution. Yes. Uh, and then molasses. And so, seaweed and then, solution that looks a bit like weak tea. Is that about the the right strength? Yeah. Normally, see with a twenty liter. So if you mix up about a hundred mils. Yep. Yeah. So, and that should be enough, I think. Good. Yeah. Uh, right. And that Strong tomatoes. Well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> tomatoes with You attitude. will see a difference in it. it is. Yeah. Well, yeah. clearly our, our caller the, is... The other, the other solution is, is, is if you don't have time to do all that or you don't have aloe vera, go and buy a $2 packet of um, aspirin because that's got the synthetic form of... Um, uh, salicylic acid in it, yes, which is I think it's the salicylate. I think yes, it is. Yeah, salicylate, so, yeah, yeah. Um, and then just mix that up in a bucket and still add all the other minerals like the molasses and all that in it as well. Ah, yes, yeah. right. And and once you start growing aloe vera, you have it. 
Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, which is excellent. It's, it's yeah. very easy to propagate and just make sure you've got enough in your pots so that you can regularly be doing Harvest. this. Harvest. Yes. Yeah. Now, Rosie has texted in again saying they are French marigold seeds. So ah, okay, so they are going to be... Now, she's in Melbourne. Does she actually need them to be indoors or protect, very just, protected? Just probably in, in Melbourne she's likely to be frost-free, really, no serious frost, so just a so, sheltered position. Yeah, if they're only from seed, though, I'd just hold off perhaps and sow them No, she's already late. got them she's coming up. Them. Oh, she's they've, already they've got them. They've self-sown so, yeah. in the pots, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, so just a nice against the eaves. Yeah, under mm. the eaves yeah. and... <laughs> Just keep it sheltered and warm on the porch or somewhere like that would be great. Now, I think one of the reasons we've had no calls is because there's some problem with the phones this morning. Ah. So do text in 0488 809 855 if you're trying to ring and it's not successful. With any luck, Susie, our producer, will get it sorted, but these things always take a bit of yeah, time. there's always gremlins. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Even in gardens, there are gremlins. <laughs> or rats. Yes. Oh, yes, don't speak of rats. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was very excited, Millie. Was it last week that the program aired where you were talking about the unusual edibles that you were planting in the rock wall that you oh, built? Oh, yes, the Christmas and the, yeah. Yes, I was yeah. so excited because... I've uh, I've got a range of seeds of unusual edibles, and some of the ones that you mentioned we actually have seed for, and then we have some other ones as well. So I thought, oh yes, I'll be able to talk to Millie today. <laughs> the Christmas has done incredibly well, actually. Oh, I'm the blackbirds did me over with the succulents; they just pulled them all out of the wall. So I'm waiting, and it's quite hard to protect things in a wall; like you can't put a cage over it. Uh, and the capers are up on top. They're doing really well. Again, the blackbird pulled the one out that I jammed in the wall. Don't capers need water? No, they no. don't. No, well, they not. they don't mind it, but yeah. they need drainage and very and all very those good drainage. But yeah, no, it was it's a, it's a great experiment, and the Christmas I'm very very happy with. But yeah, oh, have you well, got a few of? Yes, oh, you have. Yes, yes oh, amazing. <laughs> so tell us what you've got there. Um, well, I've got the Christmas that uh, um, Millie's been talking about, which is rock samphire. Oh, I love I, it. It's oh, delicious. I'm so, I love samphire. It's one of my favourite things. Um, one of the most memorable meals in my life was a very simple meal. It was just fish and chips um, in uh, Whitby, which is one of the, the ports on the uh, uh, York, east coast of yes, Yorkshire, Yorkshire coast. yes mm. um, where Captain Cook hailed from. So I'd gone there as a good Australian to have a look at the Captain Cook Museum and thought, mmm, fish and chips in Whitby. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good Australian thing to do too. It is. <laughs> that's a very good thing. But they serve the fish and chips with... The samphire, and I was smitten. It was the most delicious thing I'd eaten. How do they do it? Like just chop it up and sprinkle it over, or is it warmed? Yeah, or? It's, it, no, it's warmed, and it's just got a little bit of butter, some salt and black pepper <sighs> on it, mm. and perhaps a little bit of olive oil. Oh, it's just mouth-watering. But it's really easy to grow, and as Millie it's, knows, it's really easy to grow from seed. It's all through, I'm not sure whether it's that one, it's, but it's all through the Botanic Gardens now. Oh, it's very good. both in the perennial border and in the herb it's garden. It's a very pretty thing. Grey foliage. Yep. Yeah. Yes. So it's maritimum, Christmas maritimum is its, is its species name, which tells you so much about how to grow it. Yes. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'll be interested to see how it copes with the frost. I'm hoping it's actually going to be fine. I think fine. it'll be fine. I, but, but it's, uh, I'm yeah, sure it's a very it will, handsome plant. I'm sure it will, Millie, because I've spent a lot of time in Northern Ireland in my life. And in Northern Ireland, they 
harvest it all the time and, yeah. and feed you it. Yes. Mm. So there's a couple of things that people talk about as samphire, isn't it? Like in, you know, the native succulent samphire that grows yes. on, on lots of our um, sort of coastal uh, I, my brain has just stopped working for a second, but they um, the, the the areas of kind of muddy salt marsh yes, is, salt is the word I want. Um, so salt marsh plant, which some people do collect, and it is used as an ingredient, but you mustn't collect it from the wild. It's actually a really important plant for cleaning that yes, intertidal yes, water. Yes. So this is a totally different thing, isn't it? It's yes, a it European is. or a Mediterranean species. A Mediterranean. It yeah. loves the sand. It loves, well, as you planted, my, very, my well <laughs> very well drained. Very well drained. <laughs> it loves the sun. It just revels in heat. And, uh, in fact, the, the tougher you grow it, the better the flavour is. So mm. you don't want to mollycoddle it too much. But it's actually a handsome plant in the garden, as yes. we will see in the botanic garden. And, and for me, on a you know high-altitude garden a long, long way from the sea, it's a bit of coastal flavour for me. Yeah. <laughs> that it doesn't salt. Need, doesn't yeah. need the salt <laughs> yeah. conditions. It will, it's so tough. It will grow in the salty conditions, but it doesn't actually... Um, needed. And another one from the seaside, which again doesn't need to go in the seaside, is uh, Cranby Maritima, which is sea kale. And mm. boy, is that a delicious thing. That one you eat the, the leaves and the stems, you can even eat the buds, but then it does flower with a, a froth of pretty white flowers. So again, an excellent looking garden plant, but a, a yummy to harvest as well. And that one tastes a little bit like asparagus. There's no way of describing the taste of samphire, is there? <laughs> it is just samphire. You have yeah. to eat it to know it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, sea kale does have that little flavour of asparagus about it and, and really the same conditions, well-drained, lots of sun. Um, it'll grow in a little bit of shade but not too much shade. And uh, with this one you harvest the leaves and my favourite way of eating them is in a very light tempura batter. Mm. Can so, I buy that packet of seeds off for today? <laughs> yeah. I think Millie. that's going in the wall. <laughs> I will give them to you, Millie. <laughs> but uh, you just harvest the leaves, make up a very light tempura batter. So you can just use ordinary flour with a little bit of corn flour added to it, uh, say three parts plain flour and, and one part of uh, corn flour, and mix it up so it's sort of about the, the consistency of runny cream. And then you just dip your freshly harvested leaves into it and straight into hot oil. Can be olive oil or can be sunflower oil. And both those different oils give a different flavour. I haven't had breakfast. Yummy. It's making me <laughs> no, I'm starting to be really, really hungry. So that's one that not many people know about. But probably the, the most unusual or the least known of uh, the edible plants that uh, I've, I've brought four different packets of edible plant seeds with me this morning is the mertensia, the oyster plant. Mm. And uh, there's, there's various forms of mertensia, all of them edible, I believe, but the one that I love is the one that comes from Asia because it does taste like oysters. And mm. I love oysters, <laughs> but this is one that you can just grow in the garden. <laughs> Cheaper. Much cheaper. Yeah. I, much, I, much cheaper. I must admit, I've had, like, I remember, I think, is it salsify that's got a root that tastes like oysters? And I just can't quite come no, with can't the, quite wanting to eat something that tastes like oysters that is a bit of a plant. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not an oyster lover. So. Oh, well, I adore oysters. So, oyster plant is fabulous. So, you're not putting that in your wall? <laughs> well, I would. And, you know, I think sometimes, you know, it is, 
we're always forced to describe those flavours, aren't we? And, yeah. you know, I know with many Australian food plants, and I always, you know, you you know they're called the black plum or, or whatever they're called. Uh, it, it doesn't actually really describe what the it flavor. tastes like. It's no. really just indicating that it's a fruit. Um, but And so, yeah, I, I think you're right. It, it, you have to grow them to try them. And a lot of these things you would just... Never see them. Oh, you can't buy sale. them. No, you can't yeah. buy them at the greengrocers, partly because they they don't last. You know, you can't yeah. package them and stick them in a cold store and then you know ship mm. them two thousand kilometres and they're still okay. Mm. You've mm. got to harvest them. But out also, of the you don't tend to be able to buy them in nurseries. No, no, no. but they're so, readily grown from seed. So, exactly. just so how, if somebody would like to purchase some of your seeds, how do they do this, Meryl? Oh, it's all done online, or you can phone if you know you're not au fait with with using websites. We take phone orders as well quite often, but uh, it's all on the website, and there's lots of information. In fact, I thought, oh, silly me, talking about these plants and how you can use them, and I haven't put the recipes up on the website yet, but I promise I'll do that this week. I'll put some recipes with and all the website of the, is it's www.seedscape, just all one word, all lowercase dot net dot au. We'll go and see you at Yarra Valley or on the 27th. Yeah. 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 And Ben and Kerry as well. I bet you I know what's going to sell out first. Now. <laughs> I bet it'll sell I see already. you've also brought some caper seeds, which I, 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 I'm a bit fascinated by because, you know, they're notoriously difficult to grow from seed. Or do you find that's not the case? No, they, they do. But I really endorse what Ben's been saying about the use of smoke water. Um, I think it helps a lot and soaking the seeds before you sow them, don't, don't just chuck them in. It's a good idea. What do we recommend? We always have the instructions on the back. So if in doubt, um, read the instructions on the back. <laughs> it says soak seeds in warm water for a day and then stratify the seeds by placing them in a sealed container in the fridge and that really needs to be in some, say, some damp vermiculite or, or a little bit of... Wetex. Yes, mm. a wetex yep. is good. Or coffee filter papers, you just fold, dampen it, fold it over with the seeds and in the middle. And when you say soak in warm water, do you want the water to be renewed so it keeps being warm? No, it just, it just starts warm and just let it sit there for 24 hours mm. and uh, then then pop them in the fridge in a moist environment. So some moist seed-raising... Uh, mix in a clip lock bag or some damp vermiculite, something like that, just to give them that extra chance to feel take like an up. Italian snowy winter in a rock. Yeah, wall. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but if you do it now, then you know if you don't get germination before winter, you still got to just oh, hang yeah. on because just it, it, it can come back on. Yeah, yeah, yeah till spring. Could, yeah, start germinating in. in and then in when you take them out of the fridge, what we recommend is that you do the the warm water soak again a second time just to make sure they're really well hydrated. Then take Ben's tip, water in with the smoke water, and uh, away they go. And, and I presume you'd wait till spring now? Well, you'd, you'd start your, your soaking and leaving them in the fridge because if you leave them in the fridge for a good eight weeks, that's really going to convince them that they've had that yeah. long, mm. cold yeah. <laughs> Croatian <Suctioning>. winter. Yes. <laughs> it's such a, they're such a fascinating plant, so beautiful. Well, that's the, the thing, flowers. though. They are Stunning. so pretty. They're yeah. so beautiful. But, but, and they're so interesting. I mean, within Australia and Central Australia, there are a number of subspecies of Capara spinosa. Capara spinosa. So in some contexts, uh, 
there's an understanding that this plant may actually be an Australian species as well. It's quite a cosmopolitan plant. Yeah. It mm. travels easily. Um, and and so, yeah, it, the subspecies Spinoza, I think, in central Australia is known as the bush orange or the bush passion fruit. Yeah. And it's – or maybe they're two separate plants, but they have – the use is more as that the thing we would say is a caper berry. Yes. So that pulpy fruit, which has got almost seeds like passion fruit. Yes. Uh, and that's actually what is eaten. So it is, I think, a plant that I, I love that it's challenging to grow. And I've seen some fantastic uh, displays. I've had seed saved for me and posted to me in the middle of COVID, actually, in a WEDEX. <laughs> uh, but it is a challenge to grow and, and to sort of be consistent in your conditions for it and do you know like what sort of time period will it take to germinate and you know how long is it before you know if you've had a successful Um, run or not you really have to have patience because what i've found is some seeds will pop up straight away yes and then you get all disheartened oh god i only got two you know Mm -hmm. but you just need to have patience because they're very irregular germinators so just leave the punnet and more will come Mm -hmm. and that can happen for all season, and there are there are seeds like that. I've I've got some seeds that I put in six months ago. Yep, um, and left them. Took out some because they came, but there's mm. one of them has just popped up. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That's and it's right. just because I've been neglectful. Thank yes. God. I think and many propagators will like they'll almost never throw a tray out. No, you know, it gets mm. stacked down the back. And I've had the same thing. I've been growing three different Dianella species that have been collected locally, and. Um, I had my trays down and then the crows, the crows this time, you know, ripped them yes. down. I'm like, oh, you buggers. So there's barely any mix in the trays. And one of the trays germinated quite well. Yes. And the other, so I almost stopped watering the others and I was like just ignoring them. And then I just recently thought I'll, I'll use that tray, I'll oversow it. So I oversowed it with some billy buttons and I popped it up on the nursery bench, started watering, and lo and behold, what have I got? And so I put the other ignored <laughs> tray. And I'm talking, this is 18 months ago. Yes. yes. So, it, and, and one thing that the tip that I got from a gentleman, um, Ash from, from Goldfields Reveg Nursery in Bendigo, when I was talking to him about growing Dionels, he says, just you have to be really patient. Like it takes ages. And he said, one thing that we've noticed is a real stimulator of germination is pricking out other seedlings so because this is a, you're disturbing you're disturbing it in the wild that oxygen in yeah and, and that's what you know the like that's where they would scratching. the bandicoots are scratching a, a tree goes over and suddenly there's a big hole in the ground and that's what is colonized and it for me it was this wonderful you know it's those wonderful little leaps where you you realize that there's so many things that we don't understand about those natural processes. And sometimes we refine our nursery processes so much much. that we're only doing one or two things. Whereas, you know, when you could let things go and leave them and tip them over and knock them over and like, you know, you can learn. A little chicken wire cage so that the birds can't get in and and the mice can't get in to put all the trays that you think, oh, well, something might come. If you pop it in your little wire cage and just forget about it. It usually does come. (laughs) (laughs) As soon as you stop looking at them. Yes. (laughs) No, patience because some will come first. I'm actually going to be trialling a few things with uh, germination. One was with uh, uh, a fungal um, called trichoderma Mm -hmm. uh, and then also using like humates as well. 
uh, and then also using minerals as well to sort of yes. try and help, like and break that dormancy a lot quicker. As Keep well. us posted. Ben. Yeah. You're doing great work. Yeah. <laughs> now Ruth Ruth has texted in again saying she's having a lot of trouble raising Canterbury bells from seeds. Oh mm. gosh. Do you do this, Ben? Raise Canterbury bells from seed? Yeah, so now's the time to do it. Yeah. So yeah, I'll be sowing it now. But you don't want to have it too wet. You want them just damp. Um, and and going if you can get your hands on some smoke water, yeah, put some smoke water on there because the characters will help to sort of germinate. Earlier that that smoke water is available for retail purchase online. Yeah, um, we buy it in sort of big bulk. You um, can make containers. it. I have a story on the website. Oh, you which do too. There was a moment what... or two where we were like, "This looks dodgy." <laughs> for those <laughs> look, it's, but it's essentially. I mean, I had I had a cheat cheats. I have a, a, a construction vac, which is a wet dry vac, and I had my uh, dust collection from my table saw, which is a clear bucket, so I knew I could demonstrate it. But you can actually make it, mm. and it is. If you do it once, you've got enough to last you for a really long time. And yeah. so I've got a segment on Gardening Australia, but there's oodles of – I just sounded like Stephen, didn't I? Oodles. <laughs> uh, only only the 3CR Garden Show says oodles uh, of different methods probably on YouTube, like lots of, lots of um, – Australian plant groups will have little demonstrations or newsletters. Australian Plant Growing Society would definitely have information. So you can buy it, but if you're a if you're a muckerounder like lots yeah, of us, once the fire, you know, obviously we've got fire restrictions in most places at the moment. If you're regional, um, but once that lifts and you're allowed to have a little mm. burn off in the backyard, get into it. Make <laughs> some smoke water. Yeah. <laughs> now we and also it actually it can kill off certain pathogens in the soil too. So there's, there's been trials with it, with um, uh, adding certain sort of microorganisms with with smoke water, and it, and it was actually controlling um, phytophthora in um, wow. uh, avocado trees. That and, would and they'll be getting, wonderful. They were getting responses within weeks. Like yeah. they had these trees literally were nearly dead. Legs, yeah, yeah, like nearly like nearly beyond that, their last legs, and they supplied the the, the things like um, it was a. Uh, an organism called Bacillus attilus uh, with smoke water, but the smoke water was probably like 100 mils to like 400 litres of water. So it was like just a small amount, but it was to stimulate all those bacteria that, and they were getting responses that were killing the pathogens within, you know, hours. Yeah. Um, Ru- hey, hey, sorry, go ahead. Ruth is back again. Ask Meryl how she sows perennial seeds, Penstemon, Rocky Mountain, Chinese forget-me-nots, difficult to germinate. How to keep them from drying out? Chocolate cosmos. How to get them to produce more than one or two? <laughs> Ruth is obviously trying. She's very good seeds. Right. One hundred and one. <laughs> give us your give us your your tips. Yes. Okay. Um, well, she's obviously getting some germination, but I think one of the things that gives people trouble is consistent moisture. Yes. And for many things, and campanulas are one of them. They don't like drying out when they're in the, the seed stage. So keeping the, the seed-raising punnet consistently moist... Which is hard is work. the most challenge to people because we're all busy, we've got kids, we've got jobs, you know. You can't always be fist-fussing. So, first of all, I like to have my seed-raising punnets where I go often, you know, somewhere. Now, my husband will testify to this, that our back sunroom is often... Impassable because of the trestle tables with the seed raising punnets on them, because we have to pass through there all the time. Or my other favourite spot is the kitchen sink windowsill, 
because it has a canopy over the window, so there's no direct sunlight, but there's masses of light. It's a nice, warm, stable temperature. You know, the, the, the sink, which is below it, gives some air humidity. But keeping those seed-raising punnets consistently moist is often the trick that's hard for people. Covering them with, a, with a, either a plastic cover or a little glass cover because... Remember, you're not having any direct sunlight, so it's not going to be burning them, but you've just got to keep that moisture level in the seed raising mix mm. consistently. So I use a spray bottle to do their surface every time I pass by. If they're covered, that's usually only about once a day. Mm. But I, I think that is the hard challenge. So like having a plastic cloche on the top of it? Yes, mm. you, can, you can purchase them at that big store. Um, also, I mean, I think this is one of the one good things to come out of COVID is we didn't worry about our seeds through the day while we were at the office on a hot day. Yeah. <laughs> our seed raising uh, consistency improved. But there's lots of little hacks. Like, as you say, you know, you, your seeds don't necessarily need light, most of them, for the first sometimes... No. Three days, sometimes seven days, because they are just going through all those metabolic changes. Yes. So you can, you could even cover them with a, you know, a little piece of card or moist yes. newspaper or something to keep them moist until they they start to show their head. But also, you mentioned vermiculite before. It yes. is quite a useful tool, I it think, for Keeping home gardeners. In. But it's not a renewable. Uh, no, material. it is a mined, mined product yeah. so and, and heat-treated, so mm. there's a lot of energy going into it. Mm. Um, it, it, is, it is... And it's not pretty in the garden. No, it's not pretty. <laughs> but it is something like that can be quite useful. Or is it the grit? We were discussing grit before. Mm. Yeah. You know, that, that's what happens to... in nature, though. There's a little bit of gravel. You fall down in yeah. between it. It's a bit more moist and Actually, cool. Actually, they will always germinate best in the gravel path. Mm. Exactly. So, seedlings. And so in I, my garden, it's because my paths are all sawdust. Yes. Those sawdust paths are so good for germination. Germinating mm. things. Mm. Yeah, and the other trick is um, when I first prepare the punnet for sowing seed, I always soak it in a shallow water bath mm. and allow the moisture to percolate up from beneath. So you stand your, your punnet in a shallow water bath, allow the water to come up through it until it reaches the surface. And then you know the whole thing You've is got thoroughly consistency. moist. Mm. Yeah. So maybe once a week I, I keep them in little trays with holes in the bottom and uh, I just dump the whole thing in the, the sink mm. with shallow water in to allow it all to percolate up from the bottom mm. again. So you're keeping it consistently moist. And the one other thing, like do you have a preferred mix for sowing seeds. I think sometimes I've found commercial seed raising mix that you might buy in a bag is too fine. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I just sort of sieve a regular mix, nice and light and yes. quite sandy, yes, very well sandy. drained. But, you know, do you make your own? How, how do you do it? Uh, I, I like to um, purchase uh, because it's, it's sterilised. But, yeah, you can make your own. And some seeds are very robust. They, they'll germinate in mm. practically anything. So either way is oh, fine. But so nice and nice and open and free-draining, sandy mm. is good. Yeah, so I normally will do a layer of potty mix underneath yes. uh, and then do my seed-raising mixture on top. On the top. So when the roots sort of penetrate through, yes. then they can start sort of yeah, growing yeah. a lot quicker. But then once they germinate, you've got to provide the minerals too. So. Yeah. yeah, and I think yeah. that's a really good tip because it's actually cheaper. 
it to is, use yeah. just a base mix and then use that kind of specialist mix just, just in the, the top half. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I do when I pick them out too into bigger pots. I use mm. the normal potting mix underneath and then just make a cosy little bed on the top, mm. you know, little mm. little bit just for and, them to get their fine roots in. And pricking out is almost as important as germination, isn't it? Like it when is. to do it, not leaving it too, too long, particularly with food safe. plants. But as yeah. soon as possible is yeah. the answer to when do I prick out, as soon as possible. So as soon yeah. as the, the proper leaves come exactly. through. Exactly. So the first little set that you'll see are really just the coating of the, the seed mm-hmm. um, embryo. So that, they're always sort of little oval things and you mm. think they're leaves but they're really just embryo yeah, they're coating. Yeah, the cotyledon. That's the it. The first cotyledon, yeah. That's it. And then the next set of leaves will come and they'll be shaped like the, the plant's true leaves. They are the true leaves. The minute you see those, that's the time to prick out. Don't let them get straggly and leggy mm. and weak mm. and, you know, hungry. And and the really important thing when you're pricking out is not to handle the stems. You just handle. You just. <laughs> I'm. Hold, you can see me through the radio, can't you? I'm holding up my tiny hand. Tiny little imaginary plant. <laughs> tiny little pinching <laughs> motions. So you only handle them by the leaves. If you use your fingers on the stem. Uh, you're going to crush the capillaries in in that stem mm. and uh, then the plant can't mm. eat properly. Now, that is a really, really useful piece of advice and I hope Rose has been listening to that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's a good seed guy. She'll be right. <laughs> uh, thanks, Millie, for mentioning that you can still have winter sunshine by judicious removal of lower branches on evergreen trees. The positioning of trees is also important. Evergreen trees and plantings can really help with prevailing wind temperatures. Totally. I, yes. Yeah, look, I'm, I, I mean, it's my own personal bent at the moment because I want the birds to have somewhere to sleep. <laughs> but I, I, I do think, depending on where you are, that if, if there's not enough evergreen trees, I'd be advocating for putting a couple in and not, not all, only thinking that we can only use deciduous trees in that, in that really kind of um, creative but also insulative way. I think I think you can do many things. And I've found when I moved into my place, I did not have a single small bird. Mm. And I've yes. planted lots of salvias that are quite big, yes. shrubby salvias. Mm. And those birds, I have got all of them now. I've mm. even, yes. even got weebills, yes. which are the smallest oh. bird in Australia. Isn't so, that wonderful? Mm. And my place is, I saw silver eyes for the first time in ages ah, yes, this yes. week. You know, I've got... Yeah. Got them all, and and it is definitely planting shrubby. I, I've planted berberus because of the thorns. Exactly. You know, I've planted to try and get the birds in, and it's worked. Yeah. It's all about shelter, isn't it? Mm. Likewise, we we love our superb blue wrens. Yes, and me too. They are very dependent on that shelter because of the predations of other birds, currawongs, etc. Oh, and crows. And the wattle birds, the oh, wattle yes, birds chased away yes. my eastern spinebills and they've only just come back mm. after nine months. They've yeah. come back. And it, yeah. it really is all about shelter. Mm. 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 Which is just fabulous. I and mean, dead know. wood. I'm going to, yeah, leave some dead wood on your trees and you'll get and more birds. Yeah, and in, in the, the garden. You'll get, yeah. you'll get more birds, I promise. Like if you leave some, you can even create it yourself with a little bit of, you know, aggressive pruning. But... A dead stick shoved in the ground, um, coming up through all of that shrub- shrubby material will will invite them so much more quickly than anything you can grow. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, use, leave and, some dead wood. For and leaving perching. It's just for landing and, yeah. and feeling safe and looking. A friend of mine has a, a dead tree in a tidy courtyard in Seddon and 
she's always had this dead limb. And the other day she sent me a picture of an eagle had landed on it. <laughs> and her chickens, she's got like these silkies just like, can you imagine, like, just ran for them. <laughs> they all go to jelly and fall over. But she was like, she often will send me a picture of, you know, different birds landing on this perch. And you just think, that eagle would have just spotted that from a mile away. <laughs> oh, yeah. Not to mention off the those silkies. silkies. <laughs> yum, yum. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's it's true, and I and I think also leaving dead wood in your garden for the for the mycorrhizae for the fungi for to break down for the worms. I think it really and well, it's really noticeable in the botanic gardens now. When I first started going there about eighteen years ago, and also I it think was well tidy. It's, it's not anymore. stable carbon mm. as well, but just burying sticks and logs, it's stable carbon. Yeah, in the and, soil. Which and the soil wants stable carbon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, Ben, you've brought some plants. I did. Talk about I did. this beautiful blue thing I can see through uh, the sneeze guard. Yeah, um, <laughs> the devil bit scabosa. Um, yeah, well, the other name is actually. Um, how, how do you pronounce it before? It was. Uh, I, I say sukisa, but I might not be right. Yeah, because <laughs> oh, I always call it a saxia, saxia pretensis. Well, the other one is devil bit scabosa. It depends whether it's clematis yeah. or clematis, doesn't that's, it? That's true, that's true. It depends yeah. whether it matters, which it yeah. doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> call, call whatever you like. <laughs> the main yeah. thing is you can spell it, yeah. which is S U C I S A, sukisa, or say it again, Ben. Saxia. There you go. Saxia, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's pretentious. But is the boy, other. is yeah. it pretty? <laughs> it is, yeah, and, and it's hardy too. So it actually comes from um, the Isles in Britain, um, and, and it, it does actually grow in wet conditions, but um, also grows in dry conditions. It I does, have to yeah. testify in my garden. Yeah, and, and, it, and it thrives in our garden because we, we we struggled with with water this year. Uh, we had a few issues with with our irrigation and our water tank and everything. Um, but just a few, yeah, just a few. <laughs> like but the, losing all his water, I know. <laughs> this has done extremely well, and it's it's blooming. Like we've like one plant that we, I would say there's about a hundred sort of yes. flower stalks on it, um, and then from that flower stalk you have these sort of uh, branching off with the scabosa top like flower on it. Um, it the, the the actual colour of this flower it's a nice sort of pale blue to a purple with a sort of pink sort of anther. Yes. On the, Difficult on... to describe, isn't it? Because it is such a soft, lavendery, bluey, pinky, purple. It's a lovely colour. Yeah, yeah. So, and the foliage, it stays quite low. So the foliage is really compact and clump. Probably no, neat bi- clump. Yeah, no mm. bigger than, say, 30 centimetres. But when it's flowering, it'll get up around it's about a metre. It's a real showy thing. Yes, yeah, yeah. And don't the butterflies love it in your garden, Ben? They adore it in ours. They do. And also the leaves. They love the leaves. <laughs> <laughs> I can go out sometimes and, yeah, there'll be a few chew marks in it. So. <laughs> yeah. Without but, caterpillars, you don't have butterflies. That's so. true. It's true. Yeah. But no, it, it, it performs really well in our garden. And, and like a good summering flowering plant as it, well. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and the lovely cut flower lasts very well in a vase. Yeah. And it'll be on our website. So go yes, to the 3CR. Is, yes. Ben's yeah. posted it for us. Yeah. Now we have um, another Ben who wants to know what on earth can I grow under a leptospermum? I've been putting mm-hmm. compost and various other things there, but all that seems to happen is the leptospermum does better and anything I plant under it doesn't continue. Well, they release it when the foliage, uh, when it drops its leaves, it releases 
you know, certain – well, there's a chemical reaction with the leaf and the soil and, and that's how it sort of suppresses the weeds. So, you know, well, it stops competition around the plant. Mm, it's a natural um, thing. Yeah. If you're going with a native garden, I think even something like um, uh, like vanilla lily or something like that, they're yeah. actually quite quite sort of hardy plants around those particular – I have got a leptospermum in my garden which has got penst- um, penstemon. Plectranthus growing mm. under it, yep. so that's something to try. Argentatus, the silver silver foliage, or mm. mine's one of the crosses. Oh yeah, yeah. I, mm. I originally got it from Roger. Yeah, I think I think that's probably tip. And I, I mean, there's some some ways you can try and establish plants under an established plant. Mm. I like building up a little bit of soil. But he's obviously been doing that. Helpful. Mm. Well, even I mean. Even using some potted specimens, you know, yeah, so yeah. it's Bearing a different, big pots. yeah, and it's it's a different way of approaching it. But even using the pots as a as a, an element themselves, mm. and choosing some things that are almost hardy enough to grow without your help, you know, I think the 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 the, the vanilla lily is a great idea. The yeah. arthropodium, yeah, arthropodium, yeah, mm. yeah it's, it's had a move. It was, yeah. was it Dicopogon? Sorry, Dicopogon, yeah. um, or or even the bulbeans are, are yeah, great plants yeah. in that way, but. Um, yeah, I mean, there will be something. I'd start small as well. I think sometimes people get very frustrated, but definitely be starting with tube stock or a really small plant to try and establish its roots within that competition. Because if you try and put something large in and and, yeah. and competing with the roots, I think you're, you're bound to not have success. And and perhaps planting out from that tree a little bit, if or the shrub, like trying to find the edge. Don't put it right up underneath because it's just never going to work. But I, th- I think you use things that have got the very similar sort of enzymes in the actual plant as well. If it's, for instance, like because it's a tea tree, you want to probably, if you can get a ground cover tea tree or leptospermum, planting something like that underneath it because they often have a very similarity in, the, in their enzymes. And I think me- so they Millie will handle su- that, that soil condition. Yeah. Millie's suggestion yeah. of the bulbine lily is probably yeah. good, I think. Yeah. And, yeah. plectra- and try the plectranthus. Yep. Plectranthus yeah. is great because you can also just jam some cuttings in, pile a bit of soil on top. And they'll grow. And, and they'll grow. And that is, you know, you're kind of, you, you're not necessarily competing in the same way as you are if, you, if you're trying to go into the ground and, mm. and have it operating in that same root area. But, um, yeah, it can be really challenging. But I think you just keep trying things, don't you? And, mm. and that's, that's what you've got to do. You just keep, keep trying. Um, and eventually you might come across something that's going to actually do really well. And we've also had a request for some salvias that will tolerate strong north and west wind. Mm. Um, but before I go to this, though, can I say that there is definitely something wrong with our phones? And I'm really sorry about that, but there's nothing we can do. All we can ask is that you text in today on 0488 809 or gardening at 3cr.org.au, which will be picked up next week. And really sorry, listeners, we don't know why, but Greg the Techie is coming in to have a look and might have it fixed by about nine o'clock. <laughs> we could get Go one Greg. call in. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, we'll have ten minutes and then we're, then we're off air. So salvias for the strong north, yeah. uh, in front of north and west winds. Now, my immediate thought is things that come from California and Mexico. yes. I mean, the Californ- some of those Californian salvias are so tough and will take it yeah. so beautifully. And, and two that I can testify do extremely well in those conditions in my garden, and, and they're looking so handsome at the moment, is salvia Waverley and salvia Megan's Magic. Both of those doing super well. And they're both and, Mexican. Yep. And our, they bend with the wind. They're not brittle. 
I have a lot of trouble with salvia microphylla, for instance, or salvia gregii's, mm. because our honey-eating birds love mm. the salvias yeah. so much <laughs> they actually pulverise them. They yeah. snap them to the ground. They're, they're so entranced with them. Oh, but Megan's great. Magic and Waverly, both old cultivars, they've been around for a long mm. time, but they bend with the wind, they bend with the weight of the onslaught of honey eaters <laughs> and, yeah, they, they withstand a great deal of neglect. So they're mm. two I can recommend from personal what a, experience. What about that lovely bl- brown-flowered African, is it? Lutea? Yeah. Lutea. Yes, yeah. Yes, yeah. That's, I mean, that is, it's quite an unusual-looking plant it in is. a way. It doesn't feel like a salvia until it flowers. It looks like hops, heads of hops, I yeah. always think. And that's a big, it's a big it's shrub, a big, a big wide shrub, for, yep. which would maybe offer a bit of shelter. I was about to say it's great bird shelter. We've, right. we've had, had one right out the back for years, and, and it is really neglected because it's right out the back, thrives and it is good bird shelter. But it responds to pruning too really well. Yeah, it does. Like most salvias, they love a haircut. They They don't need it, but... Yeah, and I also find the the white salvia or the bee salvia, salvia apiana, Apiana. that is a very good one for those difficult Mm. conditions. Yes, indeed. It it has long wands. It just bends with the wind Mm. also. It's Mm. not brittle. Yeah, Yeah. and I I mean, I guess Lacantha would... Similarly, yep. cope with almost anything much sort of lower growing in a way, yes. so a more compact habit and a wonderful that winter, green leaf. winter flowering season too is yes. useful. Mm. Yeah. Yes, so that's quite a common one that you'd see in a lot yes. of even designed gardens. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's gosh, what a specific question. Salvia yes. to take the way. It's like and oh, they'd, they'd only be about a hundred. Yeah. I think <laughs> <laughs> there's a few around. <laughs> the other one I would mention would be Leucophila. Yes. L-E-U cofilla. Yes. Because yeah. leucophila will do it beautifully. And some of the leucophillas are just absolutely gorgeous. Yes. There are so many gorgeous salvias. But I also have got some in that section of my garden that are struggling more, some salvias, some of the because some of the Mexican sages come from much higher up and have got bigger leaves. And really when you're trying to deal with those hot winds mm. you want things with narrow leaves yes mm. and and furry leaves is always good mm. yes velvety leaves yes yeah. yes mm. or silver well i hope that's helpful it's one of those it is a rabbit hole isn't it salvias i almost resist planting them because i i'm like once you go down that slope it's hard to stop. Yes, there's so like, many collectibles. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, maybe I won't have any salvias because, you know. No, no, I think that's a bit harsh. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I miss growing. The one I used to love growing is the salvia discolour with the white yes. sticky leaf and the black, and the black flower. Oh, and I used to love thing. growing it. And I, it's just too cold and wet where so, we are. Do you are. know, with, with discolour, um, not many people know about it, it's actually a carnivorous plant. So, right. Because that stem, actually, the sticky stem, uh, yeah. actually catches Little small months. insects and yeah. it actually, same thing, it releases an enzyme and it breaks down and takes the protein out of the, the insects, yeah. yeah. So not many people know that actually some salvias are carnivorous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've yeah. just planted that up into my hot northwest and in my hot northwest, the best salvia I have up there is salvia celestial blue. Yeah. And you do find that in the nurseries and it has been there for years. It's an oldie bit of goodie, isn't it? And it takes the most appalling weather. <laughs> the most appalling treatment. That is a segment, isn't it? So the plants I've treated the worst that love me back. <laughs> the, other, the other salvia I find is magnets really showy is, is patience. 
Oh, but that, not up there. No, yeah. but the but blue, that, that blue is oh, so... Oh, it's electric. It's, yeah, it is, yeah. yeah. It is an absolutely... I find it quite difficult to grow. I've got one growing in the garden, which has taken me by surprise when it popped up this year. I thought, oh, my God, you're in the garden. Yeah. <laughs> it because doesn't ten- like winter wet. No, I've trouble. tended to keep mm. them in pots yeah, because I find better them difficult. I think... And how come it doesn't like winter wear? It's all over Britain. I know, I know. That's really annoying. But actually, they don't get, they don't get lots and lots of inches of rain. They just get no, it. They get it consistently all, all the time. time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's because, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> because that's where I originally saw it. Yes. Patents, and, yeah, and they love it. Cambridge blue. Yes. And all Oxford blue. Oxford blue. You can have dark ones, middle ones, and light ones, and, and white ones. Oh, and, white and I ones. just fell in and love pink with ones. It. There's a rare pink one. I've got mm. it. Yeah. <laughs> the Salvia Club. I feel like yeah. I'm not a member, but I just yeah. need to be. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it is. It's like I feel like that a little bit about the Correa Club. Like once you start getting Correas into your garden, it's hard to not lean on them now, for I, all of those difficult, more shaded positions. I'll tell you something silly about my Correas. Okay. Because Sue Stevens, who is an occasional presenter in here, is an absolute lover of Correas and has given me many Correas over the years. All the orange ones are there and growing and beautiful and big, and all the pink ones the rabbits have removed. Mm. Now, well, I know. Color, do you think it's taste? They don't like pink. I, They're like, no pink. No. <laughs> we don't. Come on, it clashes <laughs> with everything. <laughs> Let's just eat them out. We'll take them out. She doesn't know what she's doing. <laughs> it could be this, but they absolutely. I know oh, it sounds totally ridiculous, but for years now, every time I've planted a pink Correa, it's gone. Ah, I'd we'd have to same. find out but about talking that. about collections, I've got a cl- good collection of pelagoniums. Uh, yes. But the pelagoniums I grow, you, you would, if you look at them, you wouldn't even think they're pelagoniums. No, yeah. they I are brought, fascinating. brought one today. One. Wow. Pelagonium bokerii. Oh, isn't that, that beautiful? But the foliage is like a foxtail. Yeah. So yeah. It's actually, it is just like yeah, a foxtail. It is, yeah. So you, when you look at it, you, there's no one you'd think it's no. actually a pelagonium. you think it's an achillea or something. Or you would, yeah. yeah. Even yeah. a fern. But it actually comes from it's uh from South Africa. So it's actually it's a natural environment, so it comes from the, 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 the um tropical biome. So really wet conditions but poor soils. So these actually have like a swollen like a ligna tube underneath the yes. soil which sort of stores a lot of their, their food. They're good things. So wet and poor. And yes. poor that is the result of wet often is low leaching. fertility yeah. Yeah. in well, that, in the soil. Leaching yeah. but also it's hard to access the nutrients in wet soil. Well, because they send those, uh, the, the lignotubes right down. So they're pulling minerals deep from into the ground, like into the soil, so going into the subsoil. And so yeah. when it flowers, I assume you know it's a pelagonium or is it is it a typical flower? It's, I've got it. It's actually on the website. It uh, is on, the most fabulous flower. Yeah, so even when you look at the flower, you, you would think um, – you wouldn't think pelagonium or geranium straight away. But when you start looking at the whole characteristics of the flower, then you'll start thinking, well, it's got that resemblance of a, yeah. a pelagonium. Because um, it's a, the, the, with pelagoniums, they tend to have like a broader petal. Mm-hmm. These are very fine little petals. It's, it's very serrated. Sort of, yeah, yeah. Almost, it is. It? So it's sort of quite different. Yes. Um, but we've got a, I've got a range. I've got another one that's called uh, Pelagonium caffrum, which flowers exactly the same as Bacarii, uh, but it's black. But the foliage is completely oh. different. Um, yeah, same thing. If you saw it, you would not think it's a palaconium. Oh, so, now, yeah. how do they respond to frost, Ben? They're good with frost. So, what I find is they'll drop its leaves. 
Yeah. So all I've got is just this swollen lignin tube sticking out of the ground. Yep. Um, but if we get a very sort of mild sort of winter, then it will hold its lease, but you find that it thins itself out. It doesn't sort of, yeah, hold its uh, sort of vigour of the, you know, that foxtail uh, very well. Um, but then come spring, it just shoots off again. Yeah, mid spring it's flaring again. No, it? not at all. If yeah. it withstands the frost, that's yeah. brilliant. But it's, I normally I do take it to a lot of the expos that we do, um, and then I always recommend grow the, these particular pelargoniums in pots yes. um, because they're a specimen on their own. So when they're not flowering, the foliage is quite beautiful. Mm. So yeah, mm. you want yeah. to sort of showcase Actually, them. Speak, you've just reminded me. Thank you, Ben. Speaking of pots. I was going to recommend that the uh, unusual edibles that we've been talking about this morning are all really good grown in pots. Yeah. You don't – I love Millie's rock wall. I want one of those, but <laughs> I've always wanted a 16th century rock wall. Somehow I've never got one for Christmas, but anyway. <laughs> it's more of a 21st century broken concrete yeah, rubble yeah. wall. I like but, that you know. <laughs> But these, these guys be beautiful all do once well all those pots things grow. and balconies, so you can have all sorts of unusual edibles just on a balcony. Mm. Uh, pot growing is, I think, been something to be highly recommended for lots It is, people. yeah. So the only thing is you just got to make sure there's this fertilisers. Yeah, you keep fertilising yeah. them um, because the, the minerals that are in the potting mixes, it does leach out very quickly. Um, but you'd be amazed how long things can last in a pot, like with nothing. Yeah. And particularly, like, I grow a little collection of hemanthus, strangely. I don't know why, but I've just collected them over the years and... You know, these bulbs that just get better and better and better. And On neglect. Yeah, and, and maturity is the thing that makes them perform, not really anything I'm doing, you know. So I'm always astounded that some plants just really, they can really be quite wonderful. And sometimes they even look better stressed is, is one thing that, you know, some plants will actually look better as they start to have, you know, like, a little bit of redding in their leaf or, you know, it can be yes. a, quite a thing. So I think, you know, don't be scared of pot, pot growing if oh, no. you think you're going to have to stay on it all the time because particularly some of these old-fashioned plants, if you if you find the right spot for that container, you can get years and years and years. I have a, I have a camellia yuletide. It's the only camellia I have. And it is the most beautiful thing. And I've had it for 15 years. It's been growing in a copper cistern. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's maybe 600 millimetres long. It's like a trough um, by, by 20 or 30. And it's, it's about a metre and a half tall and wide. It gets water because I keep it in a sheltered spot. But I literally have done nothing else to it. And that thing flowers. Mm-hmm. You know, I once interrupted an eastern spinebill sort of pushing uh, a New Holland honey eater out of the way on it. You know, it's just <laughs> it's so generous. So I think... We do need to care for things in containers, but also you can, you know, many plants, I mean, I say to people all the time, they want to live. So they will they will do quite well without too much attention. You know, a handful of fertiliser every now and then, keeping the water up, and you can have great success and great displays mm. for very little effort. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, well I, I have the most ridiculous situation. I've got this Brunsvigia. Wow, oh, look at that. In full flower and... I cleared out a bed that I hadn't cleared out for at least five years, and there it was. And as soon as I cleared it out, bang, up, up it, came. it came. That's another good reason to grow things in pots so you remember you've got them. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're like most gardeners, you've got so many things happening all the time that 
you know, you're excited about the plant the day you put it in the ground, but then you're in love with something else within a week. Uh, and you can lose track of things well, when they go dormant. Especially like the, yeah. the, these pelagoniums because you want to showcase them. Yeah. Right. And put them in the yeah. garden, you just lose them. We've yeah. got yes. a few messages. Now, oh, hooray. <laughs> Maria from Mornington would like to know her chestnut trees being eaten by possums. Will the fruiting be affected? Oh. I would have thought not because the fruits are so hard. Well, if they've eaten the blossoms well, or the why? tips, you know, when they're actually flowering, it'll be affected if, if they've damaged the, the flowers. Hang or, some um, mothballs yeah. in the tree. Yeah. Because yeah. they like the smell of mothballs. No, they don't. They I've don't. seen no. that. Yeah. It's, it's not the most attractive solution, but it works a tree. It does, yeah. <laughs> it does, yeah. It's worth it for the fruit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it, only if they've eaten. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd suggest if they've, uh, if they've, you know, it'd be quite, a, it's a tricky, you've got to, Bang it with your feet to get them out. So, mm. um, yeah. Next one from David. Is there anything that would outcompete English ivory covering a, shop, a shed rather than removing it all? In my opinion, no, no, and you've got to remove it. I don't get, it, so. out. get it. Yeah, when, when is the nursery industry going to stop selling? Selling. It? I agree. I, do, I just, oh, it breaks my heart, you know, like so many people doing so much work pulling out. You know, and it's not just English ivy, it's different species that are mm. most commonly weed species. The interesting thing but, with ivy, though, or the English ivy, is it only seeds when it goes up. So yeah. where it's on the ground, it doesn't seed. Mm. But then it inevitably finds something to go up. Yeah. Yes. It is yeah. just a little bit too successful. The yeah. one thing I would say as a tip for removing it is don't cut it and let it die and then try and pull it off because it actually becomes quite brittle and even yeah. harder to do. So just go for it as a green plant. And pull it off. And pull it off. Like I think sometimes cut. people make the mistake of cutting it in a tree and mm. you almost never dying. get the bloody stuff off the tree then. So, yeah, mm. yeah. So if you can, just go for it. Probably manage the area for a year or something before you replant would be my advice because it's just it going to take you a year to get it out. I know, but it's a good task. Do it. <laughs> you know, worthy, worthy work. We all need a bit of hard, worthy work every now and then. Now, here's one for you, Ben. Corydalis, porcelain blue, not thriving or flowering. Any tips, please? Mm. So I'd actually uh, – there's three main ingredients for um, – for to get sap flow happening throughout the plant, and that's calcium, uh, boron, um, and silica. Silica, like I discussed, you can't buy that, but you can jump online and buy it. Um, they're probably the three major things I'd actually start applying to the actual plant and see if we can get the. Mm-hmm. What the about plant, just uh, putting some banana peels around it? Uh, yeah, that's the potassium. Um, but yeah, I think definitely boron and calcium. Calcium is, is something it's um, it's in it, it's in our soils, but it, it moves throughout the soil and throughout the plant very slowly. Uh, so if their pH is sort of not mm. correct, mm. where the, the plant is actually preferring to be, then the sap pH is actually not going to be correct. So it slows the whole mineral sort of cycle in the actual plant right down, or mm. uh, other minerals become sort of antagonistic. Um, so if you do the foliar spray, so you you'll, you'll yes. foliar spray boron underneath the leaf, do it early in the morning, then the following day go and get some full cream milk, mix that up, 100 mils to 5 litres of water, spray underneath the leaf so it actually gets a direct inject of the calcium. Uh, and if you can get your hands on silica, um, the same thing, mix the silica with a bit of, even with a humate like a fulvic acid or um, uh, even... Yeah, you could even just use sea salt or something like that, like a seaweed yeah. solution, because you want to chelate it and get the plant to sort of grab that mineral and drag it in and, and start using it straight away. You'll find just by adding those three major ingredients, you'll start getting results. 
um, within 12 months, like the plant will actually will start flowering and, and, uh, and, and you're getting the, the, the minerals flowing throughout the plant as well. I wonder if it's growing well and just not flowering or just plain not no, She says thriving. it's not thriving. Not thriving, yeah. okay. Yeah. Would we it, question the position? I, I'm yeah. thinking that, that there's a possibility it's in too much shade. Mm. Um, they are shade-loving plants, but they like quite a bright light level. I'm, I'm a great believer in Millie's idea of lifting the skirts of the trees. Yes. <laughs> I, I like to take those lower branches out and let plenty of light in underneath. So the Corydalis is not going to like that direct sunlight, but it likes plenty of light. So mm. Yes, I've just been doing it with my camellias, taking off yep, all yep. the lower branches. Mm. Yep. Just mm. so I can see. Yes. Yeah. See through It doesn't the hurt them. They oh, like it. Those camellias mm. love it. Yeah. I, I hit one of them, or at least Craig came down. What, he he texted it. me 7 o'clock one morning, coming with my chainsaw. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have to text. I would have heard you. <laughs> <laughs> and he just, it was a huge camellia, and he just oh, took most of it out, and yeah. it is just Thriving. fabulous now. Yep. Absolutely mm. fabulous. Yes. You need an electric chainsaw, my friend. They're light and fast. I've, and I've got one. Holy moly. <laughs> <laughs> Look out. <laughs> now, somebody's also having trouble with their non astringent persimmon, which was planted about seven years ago. She's had two crops, but this season only tiny green fruit has appeared, and the foliage on top is being eaten. Now, my persimmon oh. this year, last year it had the most divine fruit, mm. but this year. It's been too dry. Yeah. I've got small fruit that's hard and it's beginning to go manky. Yeah. And I, I really and had, think the only problem is lack of water. And we also had, I don't know about you, Ben, but we certainly had a grey sort of spring, early summer, mm. which di- yes. didn't help with the maturation yeah. of lots of fruit. They're definitely, you know, like fruit set this year, even in orcharding regions, was... Very poor. Like yes. the, the, the wet springs killed a huge amount of trees. I actually. didn't get one plum. Yeah, because wow. it was just Gee, plums are usually the only one. only one that hang not in there. One because it just rained yeah. and was miserable the whole time that they were um, but flowering. I think, I think for me, like my persimmon actually is quite heavy. Got quite a heavy crop this year, you know. But obviously, the climatic difference isn't as important with fruit set as the, the local weather, mm-hmm. uh, as you say, that grey, wet weather. But I would, I mean, if the, if the leaves are looking healthy, um, I wouldn't be too worried. I, I would say I would, I'd be tempted to remove most of those little fruit if they're small and, and yes, uneventful anyway. By now they should be quite, quite, um, quite large. So I would think she's, it's too late for this year. Totally. So and I might so remove, do remove them. the fruit. And if the, mm. the leaves are looking healthy, if it's being eaten, um, you know, it might be worth just trying to identify what that is, whether it's a caterpillar or whether it's birds or, or, or something. A possum. But I wouldn't be too worried about it. Um, mm. I mean, I think the the key thing with with persimmons is they like really good drainage, but they do need but they that also consistent need the water. Mm. Which is, I was thinking about the corydalis. It's kind of that. It's, it's a difficult thing to provide sometimes, and particularly when we have you know really wet spring, really dry summer. Yeah, that consistency of moisture. But, but if the tree looks in generally good health. I would just do the general health things going forward yeah. and, and hopefully next and season next you'll year, have better success. And I next year so get the water up yeah. really consistently. Boron and calcium, applying those, you, you, you'll be amazed what if you Response. do the direct the direct injection. Boron's a, a main ingredient for, for fruiting. So mm. potassium, people think, oh, potassium is actually what stimulates flowering. Potassium governs. 
flower size and fruit size, where mm-hmm. boron will actually help to stimulate the, mm-hmm. the fruiting. So um, going back to boron and calcium, yeah, but doing the foliar spray, not not applying to the soil. Yeah, applying yeah. to the soil becomes Foliate. toxic. The foliar Feed spray, really you, if you do it three times a year, and, and uh, well, if it's a deciduous tree, for instance, like the persimmon is, you you spray the fo- uh, the the stems, not so much the foliage, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. they they got a uh, uh, well, you got stomates. Uh, which are in the stem, but they also actually have in the stem is that one called uh, transcuticulate uh, stomate, which is actually a, a pore that's in between the cells. So they'll actually take up that, that mineral mm-hmm. very quickly um, and, and that will help to hold your fruit and, and strengthen your fruit. Um, and on that, Ben, we've had, can we please have Ben's recipe to help compost break down? Yeah, so because we're coming up to autumn where all our yes. leaves are going to start falling. Yes. So <laughs> um, lactobacillus is actually a really good um, uh, bacteria to actually have to help break down all your, your organic matter. Uh, also, it actually helps to suppress you know, certain you know, pathogens in the soil as well. So what, you feed yoghurt? Yeah, but uh, <laughs> this is a simple recipe of just actually – so I've actually written down a recipe for a 20-litre bucket. Uh, so if we, it's just a matter of using just things like rice and milk uh, and water. They're the three ingredients you actually well, – and molasses that you'll actually use. So if you've got yourself out a, uh, a clean bucket, 20-litre bucket with a lid uh, and you um, – well, for starters, sorry, you want to use 100 grams of, um, of just plain rice – Mm-hmm. Put that in the jar. Put about two hundred mils of water in it. And give that a good shake for about a, you know a minute or two, um, and then let it sort of settle. Uh, then take out the rice and let the, uh, the 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 water sit for about seven to ten days. Mm-hmm. So that's the start of the um, the the ferment of the uh, or the inoculum of the lactobacillus. Um, then you will actually put that into the twenty liter container at one point eight liters of milk, full cream milk. Uh, and then put your lid on, um, and then just let that sit for another two weeks. Uh, and then after that, you'll actually will drill a hole in the top of the lid, put a, a garden hose um, in that, uh, and have that going into a two-litre like Coke bottle or milk bottle or something like that with full of water so it's all sealed so that the actual CO2 can actually escape from that 20-litre that bucket uh, and let that sit for another, another 10 days. Uh, and then you'll find when you take the lid off that, you'll actually have like a curd like on the, on the top of the mm-hmm. actual uh, the, the brew um, and that's your start of your, your, your lactobacillus and then you just add that to your compost. Compost, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's no way I'm doing that. Yeah. <laughs> but, it's, it, but you have more time on your hands than I do. And look, I, 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 I get it, but I, I, you know, I always am questioning how – one situation like that can persist in any environment. Like I, I, I know where that comes from. Like you, yeah, I do a lot of fermenting, and um, there's all of these organisms that are in our natural environment. So, like I, I personally, I, I just wouldn't go to that trouble to do it. Like I would use moisture and oxygen and nutrients from the garden. But I totally, I totally know where you're going. But I'm going. Oh but my gosh, a- I could never, I could never find the time to do it. Yeah. So if you, if you had a bit of, uh, well, sorry, I'm with that twenty liter bucket, you want to fill that bucket up with water. Sorry, I missed that. Yeah. Yeah. Put, yeah. But it's just, I mean, I love, I love that. You know, it's like any time we're talking about expanding our understanding of how plants and nutrients and other organisms interact, we're opening our minds to how much more complex our systems are than we've given them credit for, as I think, over the last couple of hundred years. Anyway, gardening here. 
Right, everybody. Unfortunately, we have to apologise again because we just haven't had the phones this week. But I'm sure it'll be perfectly all right next week. I want to thank all three of you for coming in. The person asking us about the tea tree was one of our producers and she's texted back saying she's enjoyed the show enormously. So that's very <laughs> good to hear. She can just wave. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I want to say goodbye to everybody and hope you're here next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.